Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new Redefining Technology podcast. Standing on two feet, having dexterous hands, developing a language that allows us to communicate, and the ability to understand abstract concepts. These are all part of the equation of humanity. Still, it is the capacity to create tools and advance the technology that has allowed us to thrive on this planet and maybe on others. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at crowdsec.net. Marco. Sean. Do you remember that time? Uh, yeah, of course. I uh, think about it all the time. <laughs> it's like it was yesterday. Yeah, or it feels like it was tomorrow. Exactly. Where well, uh, I'm thinking of the, the time where we didn't have, and maybe not everybody has it, but information about our health at our fingertips. Right? Yeah. So we had to either just kind of go with the flow and hope everything was good. Um, no signals or signs for something that may be happening to us that needs uh, attention. And we go to our annual checkups instead. Right, and, and do a panel of things and hopefully something bad's happening, we find out. But in between that time, we have a year of, of uh, who knows what happening to our bodies, right? Hopefully nothing bad, but sometimes there are things happening. Those times have changed. Uh, we have smart watches, we have smart sensors, we have other types of technology that help us as consumers, uh, which is good. I don't have as much visibility into... Uh, what's going on in the doctor's office, uh, the broader care uh, ecosystem, the, health, the hospital systems. And uh, I'm just wondering how, how well technology is working in, in that realm connected to us as consumers overall. Yeah, and, and I agree with all you said. That's why I, I didn't interrupt you as I often do. Being Italian, <laughs> I like to just step in. That's right. It, it's, that, it's in redefining technology, and we say, you know, it's all about how technology is serving our humanity and, and make things better. I don't think there is a better topic to talk about than healthcare. So I, I'm very excited about this conversation, which is specific on a on a certain area of care, but uh, we can probably start with a little bit of an overview of how advanced technology is actually making our life 
probably a little bit healthier. At least uh, I'm hoping so. So I have a lot of questions, Sean, and I hope you brought a good person that I can ask. <laughs> I think I think we have a fantastic guest with us. Well, time will tell, Marco. No, I'm, I'm excited for this, and uh, we're excited to have uh, Conrad Wagstyle on. Uh, Conrad, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Really excited to be on this. And hopefully I pronounced uh, your surname correctly there. As you as you hail to us uh, from uh, the, the UK uh, and bringing your knowledge uh, there, um, perhaps a, a brief word uh, about some of the work that you're doing and, uh, and your role in this particular topic of technology and healthcare. Sure. So uh, I'm a researcher at University College London, and I work on applying AI to, to medical problems. Um, and uh, kind of just as a step back, uh, where AI is at the moment in, in healthcare, we've obviously over the last I don't know, 20, 30 years had this massive increase in measurement. You, you described it in terms of smartwatches and smartphones, but similar developments or even more impressive have been going on inside hospitals with new scanners, you know, high field scans for your brain, you know, you can see millimeter scale changes in brain structure that couldn't have been imaginable 10, 15 years ago. And those kind of advances are happening in all the fields of medicine. I'd say that alongside that, the research field has got really advanced in the kind of way those images are analyzed and diagnosed. So they have all these automated helper systems. If you have a, a ECG um, on your heart, there's a little um, uh, automated AI system in, in the recording that will tell you whether the, the rhythm looks abnormal, for example. Um, on the research side, with this boom in AI, there have been a few kind of key examples where there's been a lot of development, things like uh, diagnosing uh, skin cancers or chest x-rays. These are kind of the, the big topics that lots of AI research has been going on to. And there are some other examples of big advances which have potentially massive impact. There's kind of two things blocking uh, that, that translation from the way I see it. One is when you have something that works, how do you get doctors to start using it? How do you find the right way to incorporate that into someone's visit to the, the clinic? And then the other issue that uh, is, a, is a big one for AI is identifying the right kinds of problems that AI really could help with. So things where either there's millions of scans and humans can't possibly review them all. That's perfect for AI. And the other side of it might be things that humans can't see and an AI might be able to diagnose. So beyond the expert. I work on a specific kind of epilepsy diagnosis from MRI scans. And that is more of a case of where experts can't see what's wrong and maybe AI can find something that the humans can't find. So I'll give you, give you a bit of background about the epilepsy problem. Um, and, and where we are at the moment and where we're going to be heading with this in, in the next few years. So I'll start with one, um, one, one patient, one, one child. In fact, he's a three-year-old boy who suddenly starts developing epilepsy. He was completely normal before, and suddenly he has 20 to 30 seizures a day. He goes, obviously, his, his parents are really worried. They take him to see a neurologist. The neurologist orders a brain scan and um, starts them on an anti-seizure medication. And nothing changes. It doesn't work. They try another one, nothing happens. Then you, eventually this can go on two, three, four medications, nothing, nothing's changing. So they send them to a specialist center. Um, and I work at Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, which is the big children's hospital in London. And there they get reviewed by a team of 
experts. So people who are, expert, who are experts on epilepsy scans or um, experts on taking the history from the patient, finding out what subtle features might tell them what's going on. And at this meeting with 10 or 15 experts, they, they review the MRI and they see a very subtle abnormality on the MRI scan. And this abnormality is the, the disease that I really focus on, which is called focal cortical dysplasia, it causes epilepsy, but it's got a key feature, which is that if they have surgery, they can remove this abnormality and the seizures are cured, no more medications, no more epilepsy. And this is what, for this, this three-year-old boy, this is what happened. They had the neurosurgery at Great Ormond Street and the seizures stopped. So the, the kind of key AI question there that we, we are aiming at is that the first time this MRI scan was reviewed, it was missed. And with these patients, it's very common that it's missed. And so if an AI algorithm can look at that scan and say, you have this abnormality here, you can skip all those trial, trials of drugs which just won't work, and you can skip the years of delay to having surgery and potentially make a huge difference in these children's lives, not having 30 seizures a day for several years, getting them to surgery much quicker and curing their epilepsy much quicker. So, so, so many questions. Thanks for that uh, story, Conrad. And I think that helps, uh, helps us and our listeners kind of visualize what's going on here and put some context to it. The first thing I'm wondering is, so kind of to your point, uh, the first scan didn't catch it. Um, I don't know if that was just because it was looked at by a human and not AI. And then the next one, it was looked at by AI. Um, is it purely that AI looked at it or was it that AI looked at it compared to a previous scan? And I'm, I'm just wondering what's possible without, without certain sets of baseline information, or could we use other patients' baselines and compare our own, a single new scan to another baseline or what, what, what's that picture look like? What, what do we need for this AI to actually function? That's, that's a great question. So just to clarify one thing, that this, this child was before we had this technology. What, what found it was a team of radiologists looking at the scan many years after the original scan. Um, to your second question, that's exactly how we deal with it. So your question was, can you, how do you teach the AI to learn what's normal and what looks abnormal? And that's really where our research is at. Um, we, firstly, you need a lot of data. You need lots of examples of scans. Um, and for this, we have um, teamed up with 23 hospitals around the world. They have shared uh, examples of healthy brains so no epilepsy and examples of, of patients where they have this condition, this brain abnormality. And, and we essentially train our computer algorithm to recognize which bits look like that focal cortical dysplasia, this abnormality, and which bits look normal. And we have a thousand of these examples now. Um, and that's really what's made a big difference in, in this field, being able to identify these abnormalities on scans from different scanners around the world. So the other thing I'm wondering here is this particular patient uh, was experiencing the symptoms of, the, of that abnormality. I'm just wondering, is it possible to find other signals or signs before the, the actual real issue of the of the seizures come into play um such that they the, the uncomfortable moments and and uh the medical issues that come with the seizures uh can be prevented in the first place that's a great question so this abnormality starts when the when the fetus is still developing so it's pre pre-birth something goes wrong in the way that the brain is developing 
So it is there from birth. And if you scanned everyone in the population and you got them all expertly reviewed or with a perfect AI system to, to pick these out, then you might be able to identify people who are very likely to end up having this horrible seizures. I think that it would be quite forward to then start operating before they have seizures. But I think you could definitely identify a set of people who are very high risk to have these seizures. And the second they do, then they go into a different pathway. So high risk individuals. Yes. And, 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 and ideally, you could identify them before any of this traumatic experience starts. Well, I, I let Sean ask the questions because you always have great questions. So uh, I have more of than a question, uh, like a thought. And we talk a lot about cybersecurity, right? We talk about privacy in our other shows and in this show and how sometimes there are resistance, maybe cultural changes that need to happen in a specific industry or category of professionals that could slow down the evolution of technology or maybe the patients are not so receptive because like maybe they don't want to share their data maybe there is the level of privacy maybe they don't understand that if there is a choice between getting better or not it maybe it's better i don't know sometimes i think better to lose a little bit of privacy but actually resolve a problem so it's much more philosophical but i'm wondering you as a researcher i'm sure you're all about the new technology but do you feel like the healthcare industry is embracing technology as fast as it should to make it even better, sharing information. So is it culture or is it like a structural issue that things need to change in order to, to become a, better and faster? Those are really great uh, points, Marco. Uh, what are the barriers to getting this happening faster? Yes. And, yeah. and, and you, I, perfectly identify that getting large data sets is essential for machine learning. Uh, on the one hand, I think that if we were able to share more data more freely, there would be faster advances. But as you also point out, there is a kind of uh, wariness about just, you know, completely open data for, for good reason. In many, in many societies, it's not good to completely share your data because you don't know how it's going to be used. Um, so I think the medical profession is quite skeptical about sharing data, but it's changing. There are systems being put in place, either sharing data um, or finding ways of, of, of doing this kind of research without sharing the data. There's this idea of federated learning um, where, where the, the technology moves around and the data doesn't move. Um, and then on the other side, you were talking about engaging with patients and understanding their perspective on this. You know, would they like their data to be shared or not? Um, and it's something that certainly within our research, we, we really prioritize. We, we're, we're actually this week, we're organizing a workshop with parents of these of children with these, these types of epilepsies to understand how do they feel about their data being shared for these kinds of purposes? How would they feel about AI being used to diagnose their children? I think in, in the scenario that we're talking about here where it's very severe epilepsy, 20 to 30 seizures a day and nothing is working, People, doctors, uh, children, and parents are all so desperate to have an answer, very understandably, that the, the kind of um, openness to sharing their data in order to find these abnormalities is, is quite high. And I think there's probably a, a spectrum where there are other conditions where people would feel a bit more concerned about whether their data is being shared. Um, and I think in each example, 
it's really important that the people doing the research engage with the people whose data is, is being used for this purpose, that the patients who really want their buy-in, their kind of uh, agreement to have their data used in this way. And Connor, talk to me about the, the importance of context here with this information, because a scan on its own, let's assume we've redacted all the personal information out of there, and perhaps we also have to redact some of the uh, adjacent uh, medical data as well, so somebody can't be identified. But is it that the work you're doing with the AI uh, for this particular case um, requires some context to really pinpoint this is a problem? Because I'm just wondering, knowing whether or not a patient has experienced an, ep an epileptic moment would make a difference in how you read that scan, whether they're on medication might influence how you read that scan and, and decide to take some action or not. And so I'm wondering, specific to epilepsy or perhaps even broader picture, how important is the contextual presence of uh, other information to help really, really see things forward? That's a, a great point. And uh, you've really, you've kind of struck on a real key issue about this, which is that epilepsy is not just a, it's not a brain structure thing, it's a seizure thing, right? So when the doctors are looking at this, they have a multidisciplinary team. Some people look, are experts on looking at the scans. Some people use other kinds of contextual information like the type of seizures they're having that can tell you, you know, if it starts, if the seizure starts with a hand movement, that tells you something about where the seizure's coming from. Again, what medications they've been on, other scans that might be informative, all these things. But when you're planning or when you're discussing these patients, all these experts and all these different tests come together. And as you point out, and, and, and to be honest, an AI that's just looking on the MRI scan can't possibly know for certain that the epilepsy is coming from this area. You wouldn't just trust that. You'd want some kind of electric measurement as well. So you kind of have two options. One, which is the current system that we have, is that we look at the MRI scan. We find some areas that look a little bit funny, maybe one, maybe two. This then gets presented back to that whole team and they can say, well, it's definitely not this area because this is not where the seizures are coming from. But this other area is very much in keeping, you know, the hand moved and there's an abnormality in the hand area. Actually, that, that makes a lot of sense to us. So in the current scenario, we definitely need the doctors to kind of integrate that information, the context as you described it. I think the next step, if we're talking about the future, would be to start exposing the AI to these different types of different modalities, different types of uh, contextual information that would enable them to carry out these calculations on their own and, and only put forward the area that really looks like it's causing the seizures. So you're in London and you know in the in Europe, UK, we're in the United States. I'm thinking, how can we exchange this learning, this technique? to other countries that maybe don't have advanced research uh, like this. I mean, I always make you think like, you know, the first world country, third world country. I hate that division, but it's a matter of fact. And then hopefully with the globalization, things are getting better. So share of information. And I'm also assuming that the more data you bring in, you always have a better machine learning system. So how, how is the relationship in terms of the, the community um, and, and, and using and scaling these results and these technologies? Yeah, that's a really key, a key question. We, we, so 
part of that we ad we address through all our so your, your questions about how i mean but countries that have mri scanners how can they analyze them how can they use this technology when they might not have the same level of expertise and there's a separate question about countries that don't have mri scanners which is a very expensive technology so I, I think that the epilepsy community, and I'm sure this is true in other medical fields, is, is getting quite good at recognizing this as a problem and integrating. And, and we think it's a real priority in our research. So one of the key things for us is that we make all our code and trained algorithms open. So anyone can download it and run it on their own site. It has this caveat that it needs to be assessed by a doctor, but it really is openly available to anyone. Additionally, our, our multi-center study, so we, we don't just use data from London, we use data from 23 hospitals around the world. And those vary from you know, cutting edge hospitals like the ones in London or the Cleveland Clinic in America, um, to countries from with less uh, well-funded research and technology and medicine. Um, these include countries in South America, we have uh, sites in Asia. Um, so from that point of view, if they have a scanner, and the capability to run the software, they are able to use this technology. And we're really kind of keen on, on helping sites that to, to, to use it. The second part of that, which is that if they don't have an MRI scanner, this is completely currently not applicable. You know, there's no, there's no way of looking inside, um, inside the skull to find these abnormalities. And this is not research I'm working on, but there's a big development of these portable MRI scanners that are much cheaper um, they're portable so they can be moved from place to place and I think they will have a huge impact in countries that currently can't afford these million pound scanners um, particularly in Africa so we have five continents as part of our study and, and we don't have any patients from Africa mostly because there aren't very many MRI scanners and so I feel like these kind of lower cost MRI developments will be a fantastic um, benefit to those countries and I know you're not working on that specific uh, the technology for, for the portable scanner, but is there a certain level of data or, or amount of data or detail in the data that's required for the AI to work? Um, is there enough in the, in the portable scanner to, to either make, a, make it an identification, I guess is the right word, or perhaps extrapolate it enough to say this is the direction things might be going? Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, you know, if you have you, the scanners are kind of measured in Tesla field strength, it's the power of the scanner and hospitals currently have 1.5 or three. And then the really cutting edge hospitals have seven. And we've seen that as you go through these increasing power, you see more detail and more detail means you're more likely to pick up these really subtle abnormalities. So on the one hand, going for low field MRI might not pick up these most subtle ones, but there's a real spectrum and there's a whole set of them that are much more visible and with these low powered low field um mri scanners I'm, I'm pretty sure i've seen some of the images that come out of them and i think that the combination of having these images and having better ai to kind of improve the image resolution and contrast um will enable a percentage of them to be detected even with these lower field mri scanners nice so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question that's not specific to this particular research, and uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, because kind of to Marco's point earlier, um, sharing data for the benefit of the individual, benefit of society is important. Um, you've 
or your your group has reached an agreement to collect information from from these different hospitals to do this research. And I'm just wondering, how do you see things going with that in terms of, okay, you now have this data set and perhaps as you're evaluating it for uh, epileptic um, anomalies and other, and other identifications, uh, you see something else that is interesting, but not related specifically to what you're looking at. Um, do you, do you think it's okay to start to analyze that data in a different way, or are you limited to what you've requested in terms of research? Cause I'm just thinking there's all this data. Should we just put it all together and let anybody analyze it in any way possible, but then things can go really strange on in that respect. Uh, as an extreme in the other direction. So I don't know, your, your thoughts on this a little bit philosophical there. I mean, it's, it's, it's both philosophical, but also very relevant to our day-to-day -day working. We have created a, a large data set of a thousand subjects with a relatively rare condition. It's really valuable. Uh, and it would be a shame to kind of restrict the way that it can be used to this one case, given the amount of time and effort everyone's put into it. Um, with the move towards open science, there are data sets out there that are completely open, not for this particular condition, but for other conditions. So particularly brain imaging has, has nice, large open data sets that people can ask questions. Because we're using clinical data, it's a little bit more tricky about who you can share it and how you can share it. It is possible for us to share our data to other researchers. And in fact, other people have said, you know, I'm interested in this, this aspect of the epilepsy. I would like to use your data for this purpose. And all, and we have a system where all the 23 sites just say, yes, I'm in, no, I'm not. And if, if they sign up, then we can pass the data on for that other group to then reanalyze it. And there've been two or three other groups that have been looking at this data for different questions. So it's kind of massively added value to the data set to be able to ask these other types of questions that we wouldn't have even thought to answer, ask ourselves, yeah. Well, I, I find like this very exciting when you look at the, the future, because A, you're talking about exchanging information between different disciplines of healthcare. And let's be honest, we are a complex mechanism. It's not just like, I just fix bicycles. One, and on, one <laughs> on and off switch. That's all we have. Exactly. So I, I know even if we look at, you know, I'm just thinking long COVID now, we don't really know yet what causes. So I feel like there is different disciplines inside the medical profession that needs to come together. And I'm just imagine this enormous computer, uh, maybe shown a mainframe old school where you just put, you know, all the information and then it come out with the answer, which may be 42 or maybe not. But uh, let's look at the future with this in mind. I think you said something like open science project. I'm thinking open source I'm thinking like crowd search, crowd uh, collaboration. Do, do you think we are, as a community, in the right path and also as a government financing and moving forward with this? Like, I mean, I don't want to give false hope of a utopia, but it seems to me that we're making really big steps. So how, how do you see the future of treating the kind of uh, issues that you're dealing with, but also healthcare in general with health tech. Yeah, that's a really great, a great point. And, and 
I think that no one really knows where the next great idea is going to come from. And kind of this kind of open science really kind of powers that the, the possibility that someone who doesn't have access to huge amounts of research resources is still able to access, you know, these and answer, ask really interesting questions about, you know, our health and our biology. Uh, I think the field is definitely moving in that direction. There are some amazing programs. There's a, uh, in the UK, there's this thing called the Biobank, where they've scanned hundreds of thousands of people, linked it to their health records, you know, sequenced their DNA, and that you can you can gain access to that data set and analyze it. Uh, with, I mean, I think there is there's companies accessing data and a lot of researchers accessing the data. Um, I think the same is going to be true for epilepsy. That you know we've managed to create this great data set and that's fantastic but you know a computer scientist might have a really great idea that's better than anything we've done and if they can access the data set they can you know provide a, a tool and actually that's really the aim of it to, to create the best tools for, for patients there's a it's been in the news in the last week though that there's slight concerns with these things because for instance, you know, half a million people from the UK have all their biological and genetic and healthcare records now basically available for anyone in the world to access. And you, it's made with the idea that people are doing this for beneficial reasons, but you know, you don't really have a control over what someone's going to do with the data once they've got it. Um, and there are concerns now about kind of public, you know, national security risks associated with this. So I think it is absolutely the way to go, and I think. Some of the caution around the way it's done is, is 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 healthy, but I think we're headed that way. Bigger, larger, more open data sets. Yeah, and it's it, I mean it's always a a fine line, a, a delicate balance of. There's of always helping. people breaking the rules. To say, <laughs> no. Can we just? Uh, well, 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 there are no rules to start, right? And then we put <laughs> rules in place because somebody does something stupid, and then then the rules are broken by I those know. who don't I care know. about the rules anyway. And uh, years ago, I've heard stories of of certain nations collecting DNA information to use for their uh, benefit, uh, perhaps mil military, militarily, <laughs> politically. It wasn't years ago. I read this like maybe three weeks ago. I'm, not well, gonna I'm, name, sure, it's still, I'm sure it's still. I'm not going to name the country, but I think everybody can guess yeah. it anyway. So. so there's always that, but then but then you have to ask the question, okay. If if one can save their son from from serious epileptic uh, seizures, and uh, and help them live a normal life, isn't, isn't that worth it? And um, and perhaps identify that that child's children might be prone to it, and and help them avoid it in the future. Uh, I don't know. The the value there is immense in that respect. So hopefully there are systems to help uh, help guard against uh, the bad actors. Um, but I think that the technology used in the right way, there's no question it's a good thing, of course. I couldn't agree more. I think there's a huge amount of potential benefit for many, many people. And if it's just done in the right way with the right, you know, precautions, uh, you know, the limitless opportunities. Look, I, I want to close this, and I know Sean, you're going to make uh, you know the, the the final call to resources and everything. But my my thought that you, it just came in my mind is when I was reading about if you don't take risk, we we wouldn't not advance advance in technology ever. People didn't want cars; they just wanted you know, as Ford used to say, fastest horses. 
but then horses on know. cocaine just <laughs> exactly that that could be that i don't know if that would have probably caused a lot of accident anyway but my point is there's always resistance there's always fear for new technology electricity i mean i can bring a gazillion and and now there is this fear that is all justified definitely for privacy but i think and eventually you you gotta take the leap and and hope that technology will actually serve humanity in the long run even if there are some hiccups on uh, on the way i agree i agree i think that the car's a great example because, you know, once people were driving cars, there's no comparison to a horse. And I think that will be the case with AI as well. Once you're getting diagnosed in 10 seconds, perfectly accurately with, you know, faster than any human was able to do before, much more efficiently, cheaper, the argument will have already made, made itself. You won't need to persuade yeah. people. Yeah. And there's horse powers in the car anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> we keep the horse there. Well, this has been fascinating and uh i i love having these kinds of conversations where i know nothing and uh know that there's something cool happening and uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear this story and have this conversation with you conrad and, and appreciate you doing the research and, and bringing uh bringing this story to life and for those uh listening uh you'll we'll include uh, links to conrad's uh social handles so you can connect with him there wherever he chooses and uh, any research he wants to share or other articles or resources that he thinks would help people take the next step uh, in their own research uh, to learn more about this topic. We'll include those in the show notes. And uh, with that, I want to thank Conrad for joining us here on Redefining Technology and Marco for having a great convo and for everybody listening, uh, stay tuned for more as we, uh, as we connect technology to uh, the way we live and hopefully, uh, way we live to drive new advances in technology as well. So thanks, everybody. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Technology Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.